Theological education should be accessible. In the past, men have had to leave their local churches to train for the ministry. At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, you can now complete a seminary education while staying in your own church and being mentored by your own pastor. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. The following recording is from the 2023 Covenant Conference on the subject of How Then Should We Worship. This conference was held in Louisville, Kentucky on March 23rd to the 25th and featured sermons by Conrad Mbewe, Sam Waldron, John Miller, Tom Nettles, Jim Sevastio, and Scott O'Neill. Our God is holy, 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 and we should carefully consider how he has instructed us to approach him in worship. We hope you are edified and helped by the following message. Last Lord's Day, we sang an old hymn that I like very much, but I only realized uh, when I was trying to commit it to memory this week how focused it is on the very goodness of God that our dear brother, Pastor Jim, has been speaking to us about. Here are a couple of the verses which have endeared it to my soul, which epitomize so much of what our brother preached. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. The joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue, thy free grace alone from the first to the last hath won my affection and bound my soul fast. Without thy sweet mercy, I could not live here. Sin would reduce me to utter despair, but through thy free goodness, my spirits revive and he that first made me still keeps me alive. Great Father of mercies, Thy goodness I own and the covenant love of thy crucified Son. All praise to the Spirit whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness mine. So thank you for that word, brother, on the goodness of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do come to you and uh, we stand in need of your grace and help and, yes, your goodness in every hour. We thank you that you are good and that you do good, that uh, we have been reminded of that great fact. And now as we turn our hearts and minds to the study of your word, we do pray that you would help us. And we ask this in the name of your crucified son, Jesus Christ, Amen. amen. At a significant moment in the life of Jacob, he wakes from the vision Uh, that he had received of the ladder between heaven and earth, and he exclaims, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He then goes on to say, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. My goal in this hour is to say that the same kind of awakening needs to come today among many evangelicals. They need to wake up to biblical perspectives and say, With regard to the church, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. My subject in this hour is stated in the conference brochure as the ground and rationale of the regulative principle. Perhaps a more accessible way of describing my subject is by way of the simple question, why is there a regulative principle? 
A couple of things are assumed in my subject and in this question that I want to begin by specifying. The first thing assumed is that there is, in fact, a regulative principle. The premise of this message is, in other words, that the scriptures and the Reformed tradition following scripture teach the regulative principle of worship. It seems clear to me that before I can discuss why there is a regulative principle, I must make clear what it is. And no statement of that principle has any more right to define it than the great confessional assertion which occurs in identical language in the Westminster Savoy and our own 1689 Baptist Confession. And here is that statement. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any way, other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Historically speaking, this statement is the grand culmination and final implication of the commitment of the Reformed tradition to the idea of sola scriptura. Let me explain. Roman Catholics believe in Scripture, but they do not believe in Scripture alone. Protestants believe in Scripture alone, but some Protestants limit Scripture alone to what they call doctrine and refuse to apply it to the church. Included in this group of Protestants were most Anglicans and, yes, Lutherans, and I'm afraid to say, but I must say, Luther himself. It's the glory and it is the distinction of the Reformed tradition and Calvin, that they refused to exempt the doctrine of the church from sola scriptura. They rejected the glaring inconsistency of Luther and the Anglicans and affirmed that sola scriptura must be applied to the church in the way it worships. And this affirmation led directly to and indeed required what we call the regulative principle. This is the first thing to know with regard to the question, why is there a regulative principle? There is a regulative principle because of the foundational doctrine of Scripture alone. The second thing assumed in this question is that the regulative principle means that the church is governed in a different way by a different principle than life in general. All of life is subject to the moral law of God revealed in nature and republished in the Ten Commandments. But all of life is not governed by the specific requirements of the regulative principle. The enemies of the regulative principle have pointed this out. They think that this is the Achilles heel of the regulative principle found in the Reformed tradition. And perhaps no one has done this more famously than Mark Driscoll. You do remember Mark Driscoll, right? Before his ministry exploded, some thought of him as the very future of the Reformed resurgence. Somebody said that to me once. Now, here are his rather colorful comments on the regulative principle. He says, speaking of this opposite, I appreciate that freedom in the normative principle, and it treats gathered and scattered worship the same. What I don't understand is why we would treat one hour a week by a certain set of rules 
and the other 167 hours of the week by a different set of rules. When you were scattered for Mars Hill Church, you lived by the green light normative principle. You can't wake up in the morning acting like a regulativist. You don't wake up in the morning and say, okay, I need to brush my teeth. Where's that in the Bible? Well, it's not in there. Golly, I was hoping, I'm quoting, sorry. Golly, I was hoping I could brush my teeth, but I can't. Well, I guess I'll have breakfast. Well, the Bible doesn't say breakfast. It says to eat, but it doesn't say when. Is it okay to eat in the morning? I better pray about this. Okay, I got to put pants. Oh, uh, pants aren't in the Bible either. This is going to be a bad day. On and on he goes. <clears throat> well, we can live freely, he says, and do what Scripture encourages us and what our conscience dictates and what our life requires until we bump up against something that's a sin and we say, no, that's red light, I can't do that. But we live by green light until we see red light. Why is it that we live by the normative green light principle until we get to church? And then we have to live by regulative red light principles just for an hour a week as if there's not a blur in between the lines. We also have other church gatherings, meetings, Wednesday night classes, community groups. Do they count red light, green light? The whole thing gets very confusing. I think we live our whole life by the same principles. Whether we're scattered or gathered for worship, it's green light. We're free until we see something that is sinful and forbidden, then it's red light and we stop. End quote. It is clear that the regulative principle makes no sense to Driscoll because it sounds, it seems counterintuitive and contrary uh, to the way we live the rest of life, life it seems just downright silly to live by a different principle in church than you do in the rest of life. Well, he is right that in church we live by a different principle than in the rest of life. That is the implication of the regulative principle. But it is not silly. That is to say, there's a really good reason for it. And showing that you that reason is the burden of this message. The notion that we should be guided by a different, more strict principle in the church than we are in the rest of life follows from many things in Scripture. But it does seem to me that there are in the New Testament three passages which from which it more naturally follows and which it is more uh, plainly seen. And those three passages are the three passages that we'll look at in this message. First, First Timothy 3.15, Matthew 18.20, 1 Corinthians 5.4. Turn, first of all, please, to 1 Timothy 3.15. This important text regarding the Church of Christ reads as follows, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now this is a massively important text with regard to the whole doctrine of the church. It is rich in teaching, and much of that teaching it is not my intention to comment upon today. But I do want to focus your attention on two things that are significant for my purpose in this hour. First, I want you to note that the text plainly affirms that the church of the living God 
is the house of God. That's unavoidable, isn't it? The apostle plainly speaks of the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And the implications of this identification of the church as the house of God must not be missed. It is the church that is the house of God in our world. The state and the institution of the state, though divinely ordained, is not the house of God. The family is not the house of God. We should aim to have families ruled by the principles of the word of God, but our families are not the house of God. Yes, we might even say uh, the same thing of things like Christian businesses, political parties, or any other organization beside the church. It is a good thing, perhaps, to want to run your business or your political party or some other organization on biblical principles. And that's all very good. But whatever those businesses are, whatever those political parties are, whatever that organization is, it is not the house of God. But second, I want you to notice from this text the meaning and implications of the church being called the house of God. First of all, I want you to consider the meaning or reference of this phrase, which is translated in the New American Standard, household of God, but which in the Greek is simply house of God. The question is, should it be translated house or household? Does Paul refer here to God's temple or God's family? The implication to which I want to point you in a moment would I think remain the same upon either translation. Yet I do think, and I do have a distinct view of what that proper translation should be. I believe that Paul here refers to the church as God's temple. and Therefore, that it should be translated house of God. Now, why do I say that so definitely? Well, the word used here is house, and it certainly may mean in some context household or family when used by itself. But here's what dawned on me a few years ago and made me say, duh, why didn't I think of that sooner? Uh, the phrase house of God in the Bible always refers to the temple of God. Bible works tells me that it's used 78 times and in the New American Standard, that phrase, and it always, in every last case, refers to God's temple. The church is, then, the temple of God. The implication is brought out in the very first use of the phrase, house of God, in the Bible. It's the passage that I started with. Genesis 28, 16, and 17. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. How awesome is this place? There is, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. To be the house of God means to be inhabited by the presence of God in a special way. This is clearly the assumption and meaning of Jacob in this passage. The Lord is in this place. This is the house of God. 
The unavoidable implication then of the church being the house of God is that in a way different than the rest of the world and the rest of life in the world, it is inhabited by the special presence of God. God is in the world. God is in those beautiful valleys and mountains and deserts and lakes that our brother told us about in the previous hour. Surely that's true. God is in the world. But he is in the church in a way that he is not in the world. And this is what's wrong with Driscoll's reasoning. <clears throat> and Paul says it here in 1 Timothy 3.15 then, that the implication of this is that there is a conduct different in the church than it is appropriate in the world. He writes Timothy so that he will know how one ought to conduct himself in the house of God. Special instructions are needed for conduct in the house of God. And this is also true of the, true of the two great appearances of God to Moses and then to Joshua in the Old Testament. The presence of God requires a special conduct. Exodus 3.5, then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Joshua 5.15, the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. Now, tomorrow we're going to consider what this special conduct is that is required by the special presence of God in the church. But now I want to bend this nail over, as we used to say in Michigan. I guess they don't say it other places, I've been told. But anyway, I want to bend this nail over by showing to you two other passages which teach the same special presence of God in the church. And the second passage that I want you to turn to today then is Matthew 18.20. Matthew 18 and verse 20. This is the familiar promise for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Now, contrary to popular opinion, this is not a sweet little promise given to any informal meeting of two or three Christians for prayer. It's not some nice little saying that you can put on the, on, uh, the uh, wall of your house in a nice little religious -like plaque. The promise is rather and clearly about church discipline. I know I sound dogmatic when I say that. Uh, it's only partly because I've been through the wars on this one. But, that, but the reason that we must say that is that context is king in the interpretation of the Bible. And in this context, it is talking about church discipline. So read the passage in its immediate context with me, beginning in Matthew 18, 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. 
Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, a text about the church uh, uh, putting people out for sin and receiving them back by forgiveness of their sins when they repent. And then verse 19, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. In order to read this passage in the popular devotional way, you have to cut it off from its context. And on the face of it, this is wrong. But the deeper you look at this passage, the wronger it gets. Let me give you that deeper look. look at the, uh, take a deeper look at the context. The passage from verse 17 on deals with the local church and the discipline of the local church. And several details in the passage underscore the connection between verse 20, verses 19 and 20, and verses 15 and 18. Verse 19 begins with, again. And Alfred Plummer remarks on verse 19, by his again, Matthew couples the second I say unto you with the former one, verse 18. The connection is that God is sure to ratify the decision of the congregation. Another significant reason for interpreting this promise as a reference to the special presence promised to the local church is that there's an actual web of parallels between this promise and what has gone before. Lenski suggests the parallel between the two or three of verse 20 and the two or three of verse 16. Uh, but then we can say this as well. Verse 19 repeats the reference of verse 18 to heaven and earth, which speaks of the discipline of the church on earth being confirmed in heaven. Hendrickson remarks, note, anything that they may ask relates, especially to prayer for wisdom in dealing with matters of discipline. William Hendrickson. The promise of the special presence of Christ is given pursuant to the promise of verse 18 that church discipline finds a heavenly or divine confirmation. And then there are also conceptual connections between verses 19 and 20 and verses 15 to 18. A church or Christian synagogue, that's the literal way we might translate uh, the verb used here, uh, and it translates the Hebrew word for assembly. God's Hebrew is kahal, is an assembly that gathers around himself as Israel gathered around Yahweh in the day of the church or assembly at Mount Sinai. And the same Old Testament imagery is present in the two or three that gather around Jesus in verse 20. There is an allusion to the kahal of Israel gathered around Yahweh. And the smallest conceivable assembly or church is, of course, a gathering of two or three people. So we must read the Bible contextually and not as providing mottos for our living room walls with no context to fix their meaning. The two or three mentioned in verse 20 is then simply a graphic way of emphasizing that the smallest conceivable local church possesses this great promise of Christ. But then I want you to take a deeper look at the word gathered. I've already mentioned it, but here's the first thing we want to say here. The words have gathered, gathered together are a translation of the verbal root from which both in English and in Greek the word synagogue is derived. 
the Christian church is in fact called a synagogue in James 2.2, where the same verb is used. For if a man comes into your assembly, or synagogue, Greek word, in this context, its use is suggestive and forms part of a cumulative argument for the idea that it is the gathered church that is in view here. And then take a deeper look at that, that phrase, in my name. The words of verse 20a, gathering in my name, now become much more clear. What's the significance of this phrase? Well, we have a clue in Matthew 10, 41, which uses that same phrase, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. You see, to receive a prophet in, a pro- in, a, in the name of a prophet is not to receive him because he's your brother too. It's to receive him because he is a prophet in its official capacity as a prophet. To receive a righteous man and to get a reward, you have to receive him as a righteous not man, not because he's your dad, right? And so to receive a prophet in the name of a prophet means to receive him in his official character as prophet, and the same thing goes for righteous man. The phrase has reference to the gathering of Christ's people in their official character as his church and under his authority. It designates the gathering in view as one which is officially and formally and intentionally a gathering of Christ's people under his authority. And one interpreter has clearly seen the significance of this phrase when he says that gathering in Christ's name is a synonym for the new society The ecclesia is a body of men gathered together by a common relation to the name of Christ, a Christian synagogue. That's the expositor's Greek Testament. So let me see if I can illustrate this for you. Back, um, well, just after I got out of Bible college, this was so long ago, some of you weren't even alive yet. A number of years ago, I worked in a large warehouse with a number of other Christians. The warehouse was owned and operated by Amway Corporation just outside Grand Rapids, Michigan. No, I never sold Amway, but I did work there. I drove forklifts and so forth for six years for them. At lunch, we would eat together. And in in our second shift central warehouse gang, five out of the six of us were from the same Bible college. Um, We would eat lunch together. We often opened lunch with prayer and spent the whole time discussing biblical issues. And there were more than two or three of us. That lunch gathering was, however, not a gathering in Christ's name in the meaning of this text. It was a gathering of Christians, true enough, but it was a gathering of Christians in the name of Amway Corporation and because of hunger, not in the name of Christ. (laughs) So we were gathered as Amway employees and not as Christ's official people. We could not properly claim, in my view, the promise of Matthew 18.20. The specified limitation of this promise is the assembling of the local church officially in Christ's name because they are a church and in their character as a church, and that is the condition which must be met for the claiming of this promise. Now, one of the emphases of the kind of hermeneutics we try to teach at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary is is to emphasize in various ways that the Bible is self-interpreting. This means 
that the Bible interprets itself. We talk about the canonical trajectory of Scripture. We talking about we talk about interpreting Scripture in light of other passages of Scripture, which may enlarge upon, enlarge upon and clarify what previous passages mean. We, we, we try to ask the question, is there a biblical commentary on this passage? And if there is, what does it teach us about what this passage means? Well, with regard to Matthew 18.20, in fact, there is. And that's my third passage. Turn to 1 Corinthians 5.4. 1 Corinthians 5.4. <clears throat> we read in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5, to give you the context of verse 4. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist e even among Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. Here's verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, in my opinion, the parallels between this passage and Matthew 18, 15 to 20 are striking, unavoidable, and provide appalling interpretation of Jesus' words in Matthew 18, 20. What are the parallels I have in mind? Well, the first one is this. Both passages are, the sub are talking about the subject of church discipline. In fact, Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 are the two major passages in the New Testament. And then both call for this discipline to be enacted by a formal gathering of the church. Tell it to the church, Matthew 18, 17. 1 Corinthians 5, 4 uh, says clearly uh, <clears throat> that we should do this when we are gathered together. And by the way, that's the third thing. Both use the very identical same verb as is found in Matthew 18, 20, sunago, to speak of this gathering. And then both describe this gathering as taking place in the name of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5, 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, with Matthew 18, 20, in my name. And then both speak of the authority of this gathering to exercise church discipline as consisting in the special presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the, in the assembled church. If Christ's power, as the text says, is especially present, then, of course, he is especially present. With the power of our Lord Jesus is to be compared with Matthew 18, 20. I am there in the midst of them. Now here's my simple point. Paul provides an apostolic interpretation and thus support for the interpretation of Matthew 18, 19, and 20. But I want to 
conclude this exposition of these three important passages by saying that I here, I'm thankful to say, I can clothe myself in the authority of John Owen. Uh, that's always a nice thing to be able to do when you're preaching on something, right? John Owen's comments in Matthew 18, 20, in his brief instruction on the worship of God, he reads Matthew 18, 20 in exactly the way I've expounded to you. He says, quote, so the Lord Jesus Christ hath promised his presence to the same ends and purposes unto all them that assembled together in his name for the observation of the worship which in the gospel he hath appointed. Colon, Matthew 18, 20. Well, what are the practical implications of what we've been saying here? Well, I think that they are several, and uh, I hope that uh, they provide you some direction and help out of this fundamental principle that we've been talking about. I hope that I fulfilled the mission of this message, and that mission was, if you remember, to show you that the church, in a way distinct from all the world and from the rest of human life, altogether is graced and inhabited by the special presence of God. He is in his church in a way that he is not in the world. And I hope you see that the implications of this are both massive and fundamental. This shows, this shows, and I do not say this to defame anybody, I don't need to do that, but this shows just how awful and profane the reasoning of Driscoll and many others who claim to be reformed in our day, just how awful and profane the reasoning of these people is when they cannot see a reason why the church should be governed by the red light of sola scriptura. When they think that it is silly for the church to be regulated by a stricter code than the world, they have entirely missed and dismissed what is the very glory of the church, the special presence of God within her. Such sleepers must wake up and say with Jacob, Surely the Lord was in this place, and I knew it not. But then this also shows that the regulative principle is grounded not in some idiosyncratic, hyper-Puritan scrupulosity. Why, I had to think about that phrase. <laughs> it's not rooted in some idiosyncratic, hyper-Puritan scrupulosity but in a fundamental reality that is the very glory of the church. There are many who associate the regular principle with exclusive psalmody and non-instrumentalism. And whatever you think of such views, and most of you know that I reject them, to think of the regulative principle as mainly to do with such things is to horribly trivialize the significance of this doctrine. It is not about such things, primarily. It is about the glory of God and Christ in the midst of his church. Well, this shows that there is a very good reason also to look for evidence 
of the stricter code of conduct for the church and its worship in Scripture. We are not on a fool's errand when we ask if there is evidence for such a code in Scripture. We are rather and simply following up on a fundamental principle of the word of God that God is in his church in a way in which he is not in the rest of the world. And tomorrow my mission will be to lead you on an excursion through the scriptures to see if there's evidence for what is called the regulative principle and we shall find such evidence everywhere. But another application is this. This shows that there is a very good reason to spend time and effort discerning how God wants to be worshipped and what the required elements and parts of worship are. We're going to have a panel discussion about that at this conference. But the point is this. We are not at liberty to follow our own imaginations or traditions in bringing into the worship of the church things that we think are a good idea. God doesn't care what your good ideas are. We should not care what your good ideas are. What we might think up in our imaginations and the way we've always done it have no value in this matter. And so, once more, this is not a discussion driven by fastidious scruples, but a discussion required by the fundamental principle of the worship of God at its heart, it embodies the fundamental realization of Jacob. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. If the church is the house of God, his will. His will. Not our ideas, not our imaginations, not our traditions, not our pragmatism. His will must reign supreme in the church. And then another application is this. This reality of the presence of God in his worship requires every church in its leadership to make very clear distinctions between the formal assemblies of the church and other informal gatherings. You heard Driscoll making a point of this. Well, it gets really confusing. No, not if the elders are doing their job. It doesn't. Not if you understand what the Bible means by church. It doesn't. If God is in the church and it's worship in a special way, and if because of that those assemblies have a holy character and a special regulation, then what? Well, this means that the leadership of the church must make very clear distinctions between those assemblies which are governed by the regulative principle and which are formal meetings of the church and other times when the members of the church get together. Now, I, I would think, I hope, that this at one level should not be hard to see. Surely it's easy to see that there's a difference between the gathering of many from the church to cheer on the church softball team on Monday night and the Lord's Day gatherings of the church but the elders of the church must also make clear the small groups are not a formal assembly of the church in the same way that the assembly of the whole church together for worship is. Now, small groups may be useful, and I'm not attacking small groups, and we have them at Grace Reformed Baptist Church of Owensboro. But the point is this. 
though they may contribute to the overall prayer life of the church and they may enhance the fellowship of the church, they are not meetings of the church. Say, so how do you know that so clearly? Can they discipline anybody? No, is the answer to that question. They are not meetings of the church in the sense of Matthew 18, 20 and 1 Corinthians 5, 4. Then another application is this. This reality means that there must be a clear beginning and ending to our formal worship services. I know I'm getting really fastidious here, aren't I? But I think it follows, doesn't it? If God is present in his church, how can we avoid this conclusion? If Christ is especially present in the worship of his people, must we not have clear ideas and give our people clear ideas as pastors of when the worship begins and when it ends? For myself, this has convinced me of the value of beginning with an invocation of the presence of God and concluding with the blessing of the church. And I've been convinced that these are more than mere niceties. They mark the beginning and end of the worship that is graced by the special presence of God. Here's my last word. If what I have said is true, if what I have said is true, then there is indeed the necessity of awakening the people of God and the man of God in our day in the same way that Jacob awoke in his day. Are not the people of God, for the most part, just as asleep as Jacob was with regard to the special presence of God? Some of them are not only asleep to it, they actively oppose the idea that God dwells especially in the midst of his gathered people. Oh, then must we not pray and labor and teach to bring a day when, like Jacob, they will say of the assembled church, surely the Lord is in this place. And now I know it. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the clarity of your word, for its clear teaching on matters like this. And Lord, we ask that you would grant that the massive and fundamental implications of what we've been talking about might be made clear to us and might be made clear to those men of God who are here charged, either now or in the future, to lead your people and to lead them most particularly in the worship of the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.